Okay, welcome. How about it for our everlasting God? That was some great worship. We uh, really appreciate the worship team and all their uh, the music team for all the work they put in. They, it's always a fantastic job. Um, it was just uh, two years ago exactly when I started coming to fire. It, uh, I, started, I, I called JT in January two years ago and talked to him about um, coming in here and perhaps uh, helping out with uh, the young adult ministry at Grace Chapel. And uh, it's been an amazing two years. It's been a great blessing. I was very welcomed in the beginning and had a chance to welcome many of you who have been new over the last two years. Um, I'm now approaching graduation at seminary, at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, in May I'll be done. So I look forward to that and I appreciate all of your help and prayers along the way. Um, Let's begin with prayer tonight. God, you are an amazing and fantastic God. Just uh, a wonder and a glory to behold to think of, to understand. And we ask for your presence here tonight, especially through uh, the words that I may speak, that you would make them relevant and in alignment with your word. God, you are truly amazing. Open the hearts of those who are here to hear what you have to say to them. In Jesus' name, amen. The um, great movies and films of our time have a way of kind of seeping into our culture, a way of um, getting into our mindset. In fact, as we well know, common conversation often includes quotes from movies, quotes from TV shows. It it has a way of working uh, the, the teachings of these cultural films into our subconscious and perhaps even into our consciousness. I have a story from my freshman year at seminary where uh, on my dorm room floor, we were having a conversation, as seminary students tend to do, about theology, especially freshman seminary students. It seems to be all you can talk about is some doctrinal issue. And we were in the room across the hall from me, and there was a debate going on about some finer point of who knows what. And one of my friends... Uh, comes out with the scripture verse, well, and he was arguing his point, with great uh, power comes great responsibility. And it flew for a second. But then someone said, wait, that's not the Bible. That's from (laughs) Spider-Man. So (laughs) he was rightly a bit embarrassed. And uh, we righted our conversation back to theological things in due time after a good laugh. But I think it goes to show just how deeply ingrained some of these quotes from movies uh, can be into our, into our lives. And we kind of just adopt them not thinking about um, what the implications may be. Now, I think in that case, um, the, the quote has some biblical relevance. But nevertheless, it's not a, a Bible verse. It is a quote from one of the Spider-Man movies. Um, if you're not familiar with Spider-Man... Um, you don't need to worry. You'll be able to follow along quite well. The basic premise is this. Um, Peter Parker is kind of a slightly built uh, young man who is a photographer uh, that sells his photos per diem to a New York newspaper. And he's kind of an unlikely fellow to be a superhero. But a superhero he is. And the story goes back years into American history and in consciousness, but the recent films have brought Spider-Man back to the surface. Um, 
His interactions as a regular human being involve a particular girl, Mary Jane Watson, as a matter of fact. And they have this kind of storied relationship in which they're trying to get together, but yet there's difficulty in uh, actually making this relationship happen. Various things seem to get in the way. In the last movie, she finally discovers that part of his kind of aloofness is due to the fact that he's actually Spider-Man himself. Um, Mary Jane, or MJ, uh, learns of this and it kind of embraces his role as superhero hero of New York City and um, agrees to kind of endure the difficulties that that relationship would, would carry out. Of course, Spider-Man, in the meantime, conquers great villains, saves people's lives on a regular basis. Has, uh, he's kind of the master of simplicity. He doesn't make much money. His apartment is old and run down. There's not much in there. The, the Spider-Man 3 is set in the modern day, but he still doesn't have a cell phone. Everyone else has a cell phone. He's just kind of this old school guy. So what we're going to do is see from our first clip uh, exactly how it is that the first movie starts off. Does it start off in tragedy? Does it start off? How does it start off? So let's take a look. It's me, Peter Parker, your friendly neighborhood, you know. I've come a long way from being the boy who was bit by a spider. Back then, nothing seemed to go right for me. Now, people really like me. Hey, stick around, it's gonna start again in a couple minutes. Yeah, that's okay. The city is safe and sound. I guess I've had something to do with that. My Uncle Ben would be proud. I still get to school, top of my class. Now the Hamiltonian shows us that the energy levels are perturbed by the electric field. From the form of this matrix, we can see... Miss Stacy? That only the M equals zero quantum states are affected. Correct. Good work, Miss Stacy. Parker? You got something to add? No, sir. And I'm in love with the girl of my dreams. So there's the opening uh, first minute in 20 seconds or something of the film. And the... uh, the writers have gone to great length to paint this picture of kind of the utopic life. Here is Peter Parker with great success in both career and relationship. His, his duties as Spider-Man are being fulfilled. Evil exists, but it's at bay. He has things under control. He's about to, he's looking at the ring, he's interested in you know, perhaps marrying MJ, the girl of his dreams, and all is well. Unfortunately, this is not the case for long. As any great movie would need to have, there needs to be a problem. There needs to be a challenge. And it's not long before Spider-Man has his good set of challenges before him. In fact, um, it's, uh, it's a classic story, really. It's a story that perhaps is as old as time itself, that the story of Spider-Man tells. 
someone who has reached some level of maturity, some level of quality of relationship and quality in work. Uh, he's honest, he or she has gone through the rigors of uh, struggling through morality and has achieved some level of greatness. And then for whatever reason, there's an indiscretion. There's a weariness that arises. Perhaps it's a midlife crisis. Perhaps it's teenage years. Perhaps it's age 27. Whatever it happens to be, there's a moment in time where this person says, you know, I don't think that I quite need to obey the rules that I've always obeyed. You know, this morality thing, this ethics thing, I think that I've achieved a level of success where I can cut some of these corners. And in fact, you know, the great things that I'm trying to accomplish, I can accomplish them better if I just kind of ignore this portion of ethics. It's a story that goes on and on. You can probably think, I know I can think of individuals uh, that I've run into over time that have fallen in this way. Certainly there's great public figures that have uh, seemed to appear great, especially in the church and religious world, uh, that have this air of success, and then for whatever reason there's an indiscretion, and they fall apart. It's a tragedy, and... I think that Spider-Man, this film, has something that we can learn from it. It's something that uh, can be taught. See, shortly after this first clip that we see, there's a very romantic scene where Spider-Man and Mary Jane are laying on this web in a secluded woods, and they're talking back and forth, and it's, it's so nice, you know, and she's like, I want you to be with me forever. And she's like, tell me you love me. And he says, I love you. And it's all this stuff, right? And it's just like perfect and sappy, right? But as the scene closes, there's a meteorite that lands in the distance, not very far away. And in that, in that uh, capsule from space or whatever it is, there's a black goo of sorts. It is a living kind of goo. They call it the, the venom. And, and this material, this living organism of sorts, kind of crawls through the leaves and the brush and attaches itself to the famous moped you saw just a moment ago and rides with Mary Jane and Peter Parker into the sunset. All right, so that is the entrance of the evil, the entrance of uh, this opportunity for Peter to be engaged not in just the straight and narrow, but maybe to look more at himself. Certainly that's what happens. Mary Jane has, um, in the beginning of the movie, achieved a, broad, a lead in a Broadway show. And this lead, uh, she goes and Peter's in the front row and it's wonderful. But soon after that, in fact, the very next day, she's fired from the show because the reviews were terrible. No one liked Mary Jane Watson. So you would think that Peter Parker, the to-be-engaged boyfriend, would know immediately. But that's the twist in the story. He's so consumed with himself, he's so busy, that for a number of days he fails to realize that she's actually uh, been fired from her job. He goes on assuming that it's just a, a, a bad review and he keeps encouraging her. And there's a, a film clip here we're about to see where... He's so excited. He actually is setting up an engagement dinner. He goes to the fancy restaurant. He gets the ring. He's already. He arranges with the waiters to bring it in a champagne glass. He's trying to make it memorable. 
and uh, we'll see exactly how she responds to his proposal after being neglected for some time. Let's see that clip. Hi. Look at you. Wow. Beautiful. Thanks. This place in your budget? Oh, that's a special occasion. You're on Broadway. I don't feel like much of a star tonight. Well, you are a star, and you've earned it. Peter, you have no idea how I feel right now. No, no, I, I, I know exactly how you feel. Listen, I have been through this. It happens to me all the time. I see Spider-Man posters in the window, the kids running around with me on their sweaters. It's a big Halloween item. I don't know, I guess I've become something of an icon. Like yesterday. They kept screaming, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. I don't know, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, I'm just a nerdy kid from Queens. Do I deserve this? Hi, Pete. Hi. Hi, my parents and I were just having dinner here. Oh. Hello. I'm Gwen Stacy. Uh, this is Mary Jane Watson. Oh, oh, it's so nice to finally meet you. Pete talks about you all the time. Well, Gwen is my lab partner in Dr. Connor's class. Pete's something of a genius. I'd be completely lost without him, which actually reminds me. Pete, if you've got a picture of my kiss with Spider-Man, could you bring it to class? I'd really love it <laughs> for my portfolio after all who gets kissed by spider-man right <laughs> i can't imagine well it was lovely to meet you good night good night oh she's in my science class it's not her best subject what how come you never mentioned her She's your lab partner? You saved her life? She thinks you're a genius and she had her polished fingernails all over you? Or didn't you notice? So as you can see, Spider-Man, do you think he got engaged that night? <laughs> no, he definitely didn't. He was in hot water and eventually she runs out. Um, that blonde-haired girl, obviously, uh, was the, the girl that he'd been making eye contact with in class in the beginning shot that you just saw. Um, she is, I don't know, some kind of dignitary in the city's daughter, and um, he rescued her from this dramatic rescue, and he was coming in uh, for a big Spider-Man rally, and she was presenting him with an award, and he kisses her publicly in an upside-down move that he had kissed Mary Jane with in the previous movie, and everything kind of falls apart, right? And in fact, um, things just kind of continue to fall apart for Spider-Man um, from this point. Uh, he, he becomes more and more self-conscious. He becomes more and more uh, just oblivious to everything that's going on around him. You know, there's kind of some, some markers of this downward spiral that I want to share with you that are pretty clear in the movie. And one is just that he's utterly consumed with himself. 
exemplified by this video clip, that, that he cannot possibly even, he's it, like almost like a child at this point. You know how little children can't transfer how someone else would feel? Um, he is so captivated by himself that he can't even begin to place himself in Mary Jane's shoes and see how she's feeling. He just, you know, I almost cringe when he's like saying, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. You know, it's like, guys, you might want to take a, a note. You know, don't talk about yourself all the time. Lashing out at others. You, we don't have time to go through all these great clips, but uh, Spider-Man has a, a landlord who's not very well off for money. Obviously, he lives n- right next to him in this dilapidated apartment. And Peter Parker's late on his rent. And he, the landlord approaches him and says, you know, where's my rent? It's days late. And Peter just snaps on him and curses at him and you know, insults this man who's been very generous to him. And... Um, this lashing out and petty lies and even you know greater lies when someone is in this downward spiral they start to skimp these corners it just doesn't end there it usually begins kind of an escalation of small lies which become bigger lies so he takes some of this black spider goo this venom and takes it to his professor at class and the professor calls him after the tests are back and says you didn't keep any of this did you and peter of course says oh no of course I would never keep it. Um, Problems at work. His work becomes more difficult than it normally does. Also, his role as Spider-Man. What happens is he finds out that his Uncle Ben, who was killed in the previous movie, um, they thought they had the killer behind bars, but it turns out the killer is still on the loose. So Spider-Man gets this, uh, this kind of evil notion in his heart that he needs to take out revenge. He needs to, needs to go aggressively after uh, this person. And it's that, that aggression, that evil that kind of settles in, is that revenge that settles inside of him that allows the, the black venom to cover him into this black Spider-Man suit. So when he's wearing the black suit, he he's kind of has this spunky, um, slurry uh, attitude, this, this kind of way of, he's always pointing at girls and like cause, you know, just talking back at people, taking advantage of people, whichever way he can. And then uh, kind of the capstone moment uh, is when he is broken up at this point, completely broken up with MJ, and MJ is starting to date one of his friends, and uh, you know, all these things are kind of falling apart. He begins to, to date blonde-haired Gwen Stacy, and uh, on one of their first dates, he actually takes her to the bar in which MJ is singing at to make a living now. He takes her into that place, and starts just causing an amazing scene, dancing and jumping on the piano, playing this, and eventually causes a brawl within this uh, club. And he's about to be kicked out, and MJ, out of compassion for him, comes to try and break up the crowd. And what he does is he throws a punch right at her and knocks her to the ground. And that's kind of like the shocking moment for him. See, it, it took that much. It took him hitting his own really his own love, to knock him out of this trance that he was in. There had been signposts along the way. You know, um, I think there's, there's some biblical parallels here we'll get to in a moment. But uh, Aunt May, Peter's aunt, uh, is definitely intended to be seen in the prophetic role. And she originally blesses the engagement. Uh, she confronts Peter at different times. When he doesn't get back to her about the engagement, she visits the apartment and 
you know, it, it's kind of a, a, a difficult situation. And, and Peter admits that he hasn't been able to put MJ before himself. So he, he, he notices these things. Also, he goes to her bragging about having killed Uncle Ben's, or Spider-Man having killed Uncle, ben, Uncle Ben's Avenger. And she goes and kind of rebukes him for saying, Spider-Man doesn't kill people. She said, Uncle Ben wouldn't want for a moment to have us harbor revenge in our hearts because this, this unforgiveness unfor- that we harbor rots us from the inside more than it would ever hurt our enemies. And even the landlord, he's a signpost along the way because although he was lashed out at when Peter closes the door, the landlord says something to the effect of, he can, like, he can see the anger welling up in him, but he swallows it and pushes it down and says, he is a good boy. There must be something wrong. And I think that's a, an example for us as well. It's, uh, there's, a, there's a proverb that says, a prudent man overlooks an insult. And that's the grace that this landlord gave Peter Parker was when he lashed out in a very rude and, and unbelievable um, way, really, to his landlord, he said, you know what? There must be a problem. He didn't lash back. He said... He offered a bit of grace. And then um, another signpost was even the new girlfriend. In this bar scene where the, the brawl takes place, uh, the new girlfriend, one of her, her last line is, she, go, he, she says to Peter Parker, you did all this for her, meeting MJ, was furious, goes apologizes to MJ and storms out. So after all this happens, Peter does realize that he is out of control of his own life and that he needs to resume uh, some measure of control and that this black suit is not all it's cracked up to be and that the power he thought he had that he could gain by cutting his own rules of ethics really isn't going to turn out. We have a clip here of um, Spider-Man, the black Spider-Man, struggling through getting this suit off of him that has bound himself it has bound itself to him. Let's take a look. The man in this, uh, the second man, is an enemy he's created at work. A regular photographer who wants his job, and uh, they've had some conflict. So now you'll see them interact in this scene.
So there's the venom. There's the, the dark Spider-Man fighting through the evil that he has embraced and then casting it off of himself. But what happens? It just doesn't go away. It's amplified. Because Peter Parker was unwise, because he was unable to recognize the evil for what it was, contain it, he obviously could have captured it, destroyed it, something early on. But because he allowed it to thrive and to fester in his own life, it in fact becomes more powerful in the life of his enemy. See, our sin is not just our own. Our sin, it affects the myriads of people that are around us, that know us, that depend on us. And even when we struggle, struggle through it and get past it, uh, we may be forgiven, but that does not mean the consequences continue, uh, that cease to continue. But they often, because of our sin, are amplified in our future life or in the lives of those who we are battling against. Uh, it's, it's a tragedy. In fact, as I was thinking through this movie and the, uh, the, the great narrative that it is, um, I was thinking about how I'd relate this to Scripture and you know, the biblical parallels that might be there. And I was reminded of another story, another very similar story, and that's the story of King David. If you think about the story of King David, it's, it's much the same story as Spider-Man's story. It's a story from which a boy from unlikely circumstances is somehow given a special measure of authority and power. He's given the blessing of God. David, the shepherd boy from Bethlehem, somehow is anointed by Samuel to be the next king. He battles with Saul, risks his life, um, conquers great numbers of foreign armies and enemies. And, you know, as though we know the women sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. So David had reached this kind of pinnacle, this kind of height. He'd, he'd struggled the good struggle. He'd fought the good fight. He'd carried on exactly the way Spider-Man's presented to us. It's not that he never sinned, but that he served whom he was supposed to serve. Of course, Spider-Man is kind of a, a godless morality, right? The best we get is the picture of the cross on the top of the chapel we just saw. But the story of David is a real story in time and space and history. And it's amazing to me how the same thing happens. David is hailed as this great king, but yet he's a murderer and an adulterer. Second Samuel chapter 11 is a, uh, a great passage, and it's, the, it's, a, it's a tragic passage. It's the story of David's indiscretion with Bathsheba. He was um, at home when he should have been in battle. You know, the chapter starts off, it says, in the spring of the year when it was time for the kings to go off to war, David stayed at home, and Joab, he sent Joab, the commander of the army, into the field. And that in itself is a, uh, an implication against David, because David was the king. David was the chief warrior. He was to be out in the battlefield, but he wasn't. He was relaxing, and, his, and he actually said he got out of bed and went to his roof, 
While the men were sleeping in tents in the field, David was in his bed. While they were keeping themselves ritually pure, you know, the, the Hebrew army, when they went to battle, it was considered a holy event. And they kept themselves ritually pure. They did not interact with their wives or with women. And here's David on his roof looking around. Who does he see? Bathsheba. He says, Who's, who is this girl? sends to a servant, and the servant comes back and said, He's, she's, isn't she such and such? And, and we don't know for sure who she is, but the names line up with people in his royal guard, in his royal court. You know, if it's a house near his, it's likely to be in the royal district. It's probably the daughter or the wife, daughter and wife, of some very close people to David. And, of course, he does um, sleep with her, and she gets pregnant, he sends for Uriah the Hittite to come and hopefully he would sleep with his own wife so that he could get out of this mess. But Uriah is so holy that he doesn't even go, go ahead. He sleeps in the porch of the palace, refuses to go home because he's so serious about the war task at hand. He wouldn't consider making himself defiled when the rest of the troops were at war, further implicating David. See, you and I are engaged in these struggles all the time. We, uh, I can see myself as this David, right? Someone who's constantly has this battle that, um, or even as this Spider-Man. Maybe you can see yourself as David or as Spider-Man. Maybe you've lived your life to a certain extent. Maybe things seem to be going okay. Maybe things are pretty rough. But you have the opportunity to struggle between these two poles. Are you going to approach the good? Are you going to live as um, one who is holy and righteous? Or are we going to toy with this evil? I have a slide of a scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. If you want to look it up in your own Bible, you can. Um, do we have that slide? Yeah. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. And it says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As people who believe in Jesus Christ, those people who do believe in Jesus Christ, this is our situation. We weren't necessarily set apart as some great person uh, from, from the world's standards. But yet by God's great authority and His great wisdom and His great mercy, He has given us huge responsibilities in the kingdom. He has forgiven us of our sins. He has given us a, a task and a purpose in this life. And we can shame the strong because of it. You know, strong by the world's standards... Is, is kind of this embracing of the evil. 
You know, we know that our culture, um, evil is something that's kind of out of style. Our next slide is a uh, proverb. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Um, in many schools and many people's perspective today, they question, is there really evil? Is there really evil to be fought? Many people would say, no, there isn't. There is no evil. That my truth is my truth, and whatever you believe is truth is truth, and however you live your life is, is up to you. That nothing is truly, if nothing could be truly good, then nothing could be truly evil. But we as Christians know something else. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Maybe tonight you don't know if you're a Christian or not. Maybe you don't know all this about evil. Maybe you don't know if Spider-Man can really be used in a sermon. Um, but I'm saying that it is a good illustration that King David was fully forgiven. That all throughout the Bible, David is hailed as one who was seeking after God's own heart. And that even though David committed this sin, and even though he paid for it through chaos in his family, he was able to carry through. And he was able to, not in his own way, but in the way of God, um, in the strength of the Spirit, be forgiven, be bestowed grace. Because he returned to, his, uh, to the ways of the Lord, he was forgiven these things. So whatever sin you may be carrying whatever battle you may be in, whatever epic struggle uh, your life represents right now, know that you can be forgiven. Our last slide tells us who our struggle is against. The famous passage from Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, we are in an epic battle. Whether we choose to admit it or not, the Word of God proclaims to us that we are in a struggle against evil. And the question becomes, will you adopt the cause? Will you go forward in your days ahead and live in a way that shows you battling against what God has chosen you to battle against? We can't do it in our own strength. This temptation, this sin is always at our door. But if we trust in God and live through Him, we are indeed able to come through it. See, Spider-Man, he's missing half the equation. He's missing the spiritual authority. It kind of is represented through his Spider-Man you know, supernatural authority. But you and I, we depend on the Lord our God, and He is our supernatural authority by which we are able to rescue the lost, worship Him, extend grace to others, and become victorious in this difficult life. Thank you. We have uh, JT and I believe um, Mary Tiller, I think, coming forward and um, for a short presentation. Well, first, before we get to that, I just want to say thank you very much, Justin, for uh, speaking tonight. Great job. All right.
we have a lot to think about and a lot to consider to try and prevent anything to creep into our lives and allow the equivalent of some kind of cosmic goo to get stuck on us. So let's make sure we guard ourselves being in a great community where we can look at our lives before the Lord. But uh, I have great news. Mary Tiller was actually able to make it with us. We were going to have Mary share her coming call in her life. She's going to be actually going in the mission field this coming week. And what happened was on her way to fire tonight, she was in a car accident. And that's why we're so fortunate to have her here at all. So as she shares with what uh, her story is and where God is going to lead her, just keep that in your heart. And if you are a praying person, you can be praying for her. But I'm just really glad now to have her share what God is going to do with her. The good news about the car is that I'm not going to need it pretty soon. Um, I am going on a missions trip. I'm taking a missions position in Santa Marta, Colombia. Um, I'm leaving Tuesday, and it's for one year. Um, I'll start you off with the basics. The organization I'm going with is called South America Mission, and their mission statement is to build leaders to build churches. So basically what that means is that... um, their goal is to support local leadership, and instead of coming in and building a church and running it themselves, um, they really want it to be self-sufficient and self-sustainable. Um, so how do I fit into all of that? Well, um, they have places all over South America, but I, like I said, I'm going to be in Santa Marta. Um, on the next slide. Just to give you a basic idea of where that is, it's where the arrow is pointing to. Um, and then on the next slide... It shows you the city is a harbor town. Um, There's a lot of dull banana boats going in and out. Um, What I'm going to be doing there is working with the youth at the church and in the community, starting a youth program and also doing discipleship. And also the church has its own missions field, which is a school um, just down the street from the church, and I'm going to be teaching English there. Uh, uh, That's the church. Sorry, forgetting the slides. The next slide is a picture of the school in the morning assembly. It's about 200 to 300 students. And on the next slide is a classroom. Um, And the woman there is Bethany Brown. She's the only other missionary that's there, so I'll be working closely with her. Uh, When I think about all the different responsibilities and challenges that I'm going to face, I am amazed at how precisely and specifically God has prepared me and designed me for this position. And I think it's so awesome that we have a God that does that. Um, But when God first called me to be a missionary in South America, Colombia was actually the only country I did not want to go to. And so, of course, that's where God calls me. Um, But the reasons for that was that I've heard it was dangerous. And um, some of the things that are facing Colombia right now that I was afraid of are persecution, especially of Christians that are trying to get involved in um, ending the oppression and the injustice. Um, part of what they work against is this group called the FARC, and they are a militant rebel group um, that's done a pretty good job of keeping the country in some turmoil. Um, And they are mainly funded by the illicit drug trade that's going on there, um, which is significant. It accounts for about 90% of the country's gross domestic product. So that's kind of a big deal. And lastly, a large percentage of the population lives below the poverty line, um, so they're always battling that as well. So those were the things that I was hoping to avoid um, and that God is now calling me to face. Um, I kind of am not surprised, though, as I'm sure you aren't either, that God did that. 
it seems to me that everyone's call to missions is different. Um, but in every story that I've heard, at least, there's always God throwing a curveball somewhere in there. Um, and I don't say this to discourage anyone, but rather to encourage. It's not that God has thrown me this curveball and now I have to go deal with all this. What's actually happening is God's given me the opportunity to face all of this, and that's an amazing opportunity. Um, what God has taught me through this is that as a follower of Christ, I'm called to be radical. We're all called to be radical. God is calling me to do things every day that seem unimaginable to me because they're not what my society or what my culture is accustomed to. And a lot of times they're not what my parents or my church is accustomed to either. Um, but the same was true for Jesus. And I think if we're following him, we're going to see that happen. I don't think God calls his children to continue in the doldrums of daily life. I think he calls us to create change in our society. Um, but how can you hear him calling that change if all you're expecting and all you're listening for is God's calling you to continue on the same path that you're on? So I've learned a lot about that um, so far in this call, and that there is a lot of work to be done and a lot of change that needs to be made. The challenges that I mentioned in Colombia right now are intimidating, but they are not solid. Justice is built on the empty foundation of the enemy's tactics. Injustice is built on fear and on greed. And that foundation is no match for the foundation that God has given us, because our foundation is the rock. And we are very well equipped to fight, to fight injustice. Second um, Timothy 1.7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of self-control. And because of this, and because of Christ Jesus, there is hope in Colombia. And as we all know, hope does not disappoint us. Now here's the shameless plug that I'm throwing in. I've still got some support to raise, about $2,300 left. Um, and there are a million worthy causes that God is probably calling you to invest in financially, and you should follow whatever that call is. But if this happens to be one of them, or one you might want to learn more about, please come see me after fire. I could give you more information or answer any questions that you have. Excuse me, any questions that you have. Um, and also, I'm looking for prayer support as well. So we'll have a sign-up sheet, and I would be so, so grateful if any of you want to be on that list um, and receive prayer letters while I'm gone. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I could talk for hours, so please come talk to me more. Mary, I imagine that there are many questions that people have. I know, for example, when are you leaving is one that I have. Tuesday morning. And how long are you going for? A year. So you're leaving from Tuesday in January all the way till next Tuesday. I mean, next January. <laughs> um, will you have any break? Will there be any opportunities for people to visit you? How can people get a hold of you? Yeah, um, I'll be available on the Internet, the school's Internet, so I could probably be on that every day if anyone wants to reach me. Um, I'm not coming back at all over the year, um, but people can definitely come visit me, and I know that the organization actually even does short-term missions trips if anyone's interested in that. And you mentioned they can support you financially and through prayers. Are there any other things that people need or help with? Um, 
honestly, those are the two main ones that um, the school and the church is pretty well organized down there, and they can get a lot of the supplies they need. They just need the finances to do it with. Um, but prayer is the biggest thing because that's what's going to make all the difference. And speaking of prayer, I want to pray with you. But before I get to that, I want to offer an opportunity to everyone else. So don't go anywhere, okay? Um, many of you may know that Grace Chapel is a very mission-minded church. And it's people like Mary allow God to come into someone's life and be called into the mission field to advance the gospel, to share the love of Christ, no matter where he calls, both domestically and globally. Well, one of the things that we do here at FIRE is we send out short-term missions trips. And we have a couple of trips that are going to be coming this summer. For example, we have a team going to Ecuador. We're going to have a team going to the Jordan. We're going to have a team going to Russia. And we're exploring a team to Africa. I don't know if, Roger, you can have the slide up there. that just gives people a, a mental image of the teams. But if you're interested in applying for one of these short-term missions trips, we have these mission application forms. Everyone that is considering going needs to fill out an application form, and then the team leaders and the church leadership approve each individual so that God's hand is really clearly put on those folks being called to form that team. And also we want to make sure those team participants are really right to go and serve that way. Many people may be moved to go, but only a few get called to serve, especially serve for a year like Mary has. So before you actually get ready to fill out an application, pray about it. Before you start to spread that to other people and say, I'm going on a trip, make sure you're approved first, just so that that way when the authority comes down through God's blessing, then you can really get that support and that encouragement and that basking of faith through the community. And that's what we're going to do right now for Mary. I'd love to pray for you and send you off. Anyone who, wants to come up, anyone who wants to come up and pray over Mary, please come and join us. Lord, you are an awesome God. You are holy and true. You are faithful and loving and merciful. And you raise up individuals to go and proclaim this to others so that men and women, children can come to know you, come to know and experience your son, Jesus Christ, and be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we are so thankful for Mary and for her willingness and her faithfulness to answer the call to go to Columbia. We pray, Jesus, that you will clear the way of any problems, financial or stress or worries, or now with this car accident. We pray, Lord, that Mary will be healthy and prepared to serve you well. We ask that you go before her and go with her and follow up behind her and allow your Holy Spirit to renew and refresh her each and every day as she serves you in this tumultuous country of, of Columbia and in this port city. We thank you for the mission work there and the partnership she will receive and the encouragement and training. And we ask, God, that we will keep her in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirit, so that we can pray for her and look at ways to partner with her from abroad. We thank you for Mary, and we thank you for her testimony tonight. And we commission her, Lord, in your mighty name to be your servant. Amen. <laughs>